0: Bible. You'll want me to turn my headset on so you can hear me. All right. If you have a Bible, you can open to Luke 19. If you don't have one with you today, we will have the scripture on the screen uh, for you. But Luke 19 is where we are at, and um, we have been able to stay on track to work it. So where our Luke study runs right up into the triumphal entry, Um, We have a lot of stuff in Luke before we get to the resurrection, so we won't take it straight to there uh, next week, but it does line up with the triumphal entry. We'll actually take a break from Luke for about a month after today, and then we will pick it up in verse 45 of chapter 19 uh, in May. But uh, Luke 19 in the history of the world, wherever you find royalty and you find power, you will find servants. So uh, the Queen of England, even today, reportedly has over a thousand people that are her servants. If you ever watched a show like Downton Abbey, you would even know some of the names of, of, of these jobs, right? Footmen and, and uh, lady maids and things like that. I thought it was interesting that they have two servants who work at Buckingham Palace whose entire job is just to take care of clocks. That's all they do. There's 300 clocks in the palace, and their entire career as just taking care of the Queen's clocks. Uh, The famous Russian ruler, Catherine the Great, had an abundance of servants, uh, famously gave one of her lovers over a 1,000 servants uh, as a gift. Genghis Khan had 130,000 servants that were um, under his rule. Most of them served in his army. They were so serious about serving that when he died, they had a group of servants to bury him, and then those servants were killed, so nobody would know where his body was. Then they killed the servants who killed the servants so they would be doubly protected and nobody would know where his body was at. So wherever we find power, we find people serving that power. For centuries, this is how kingdoms have been won. Rulers subjugate people. Rulers make uh, the, the people that they, uh, that they win over, they make them their servants, and then they expand their kingdom. And Kingdoms are won by power and might, and kingdoms are won by blood and war. This is how the West was won and all the other regions of the world. But this morning, we see a different type of king in Luke 19. We do see a king over servants. and We're seeing a king who has servants, no doubt about that. A, a king who is over a global church filled with followers who want to serve him. But the difference is, is that in order to make us his servants. Jesus had to redeem us. In order to make his followers his servants and his friends, Jesus had to serve them by laying down his life and dying on a cross. He did not win the kingdom through subjugation and domination. He won it through redemption. He won it by being the suffering servant. And so we're going to just look at the king in this passage this morning. So I'll start reading for us in Luke 19 verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he uh, had told them, And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord is need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. humbly submit ourselves before your word this morning we fall down before your power before your majesty and we ask you from the very bottom of our hearts this morning that the seed of your word would be sown among us and it would take deep root roots that are so deep that when the heat of persecution comes it could not burn up what is grown that when the thorny cares of life come to choke out the growth that it would not be able to do it that the seed would be sown in the good ground of our hearts this morning that would bring forth fruit 30 fold, 60 fold, 100 fold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. So may your word not return void. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The timeline of the life of Jesus was headed for the crucifixion. From the time that Joseph and Mary found out about her pregnancy and who this child would be. In fact, you could take it back further than that and say the life of Jesus has been headed toward the crucifixion from before time. But in Luke's narrative... We've really been moving toward the cross since Luke 9, verse 51. Because in Luke 9, verse 51, Luke said, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from that moment in Luke, Jesus is moving toward the cross. The biography of Christ is moving toward the cross. Step by step, verse by verse, word by word, punctuation mark by punctuation mark, we've been getting closer to Calvary. And now we're getting really close geographically Jesus is approaching Bethany and Bethphage near Mount Olivet from Jerusalem to Jericho it's about a 15 mile trek and if you're coming in the direction from Jericho so you're going from Jericho to Jerusalem you ascend 3,500 feet in the process. So it was an arduous 15-mile trek that took your breath away, but there would have been anticipation growing with every mile. I doubt the people following Jesus even had a second thought about how hard the journey was and about how tough it is to go up that big hill on the way to Jerusalem because they are thinking about what's going to happen when they arrive there. When Jesus visited Jerusalem, he often lodged in Bethany, And this is where he is as we get to verse 28. It's the hometown of Mary and Martha. It's the hometown of Lazarus. In John 12, verse 1, John says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So John also places Jesus six days before the Passover in Bethany. Now here's what's interesting So a little sidebar for you, this has led a lot of commentators to believe that Palm Sunday didn't actually happen on a Sunday, but that Palm Sunday actually occurred on a Monday. He got to Bethany on a Saturday, six days before the Passover, and according to Matthew 26, he then goes to the home of Simon the leper and has dinner on Sunday, one week before Easter. Then he enters Jerusalem on Monday, Palm Monday, if you will, that sounds weird to say. If that lines up, it's, it's pretty neat because of the fact that the Passover lambs were selected on the 10th day of the first month, and they were sacrificed on the 14th day, meaning that if it really was Palm Monday, the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus, is entering into Jerusalem on the 10th day the day in which Passover lambs were selected, and then he was killed and crucified on Friday, the 14th day, the day in which the Passover lamb was to be slaughtered. You don't need to be dogmatic about this one way or the other, all right? Palm Sunday, Palm Monday. The bottom line is, in Luke 19, we have a significant moment in redemption history. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, There is a heightened excitement about what is going to take place, but there is a discrepancy between the expectation and the reality. The expectation from the throngs of people following Jesus, even from his disciples, is that he is going to ride into Jerusalem And that he is going to establish his kingdom by overthrowing the Roman occupation, the Roman rule that was present in Judea. He was going to toss Caesar out on his ear. Caesar's out. He was going to take his rightful place and uh, sit down on the throne of David. In other words, the expectation is Jesus is about to take the kingdom by force. And you saw this expectation last week before he told us the parable of the minus in Luke 19 verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The closer they got to Jerusalem, the greater the expectation that Jesus was going to come in, he was going to defeat Rome and set up his rule as the majestic son of David. Even after the resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you are going to establish the kingdom? Is this the time when you're going to overthrow Rome? But the reality is, is that Jesus in his first coming did not come to defeat Caesar, and he's not entering into Jerusalem to defeat Caesar. He came to defeat a much more dangerous enemy. A much more powerful enemy than Rome. He came to defeat the devil. He came to defeat Satan and his minions, his demons. He came to defeat sin. He came to defeat hell. He came to defeat death itself. He came to be the servant king who would empty himself in order to save his people from the eternal grip of evil. And We see this reality in Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. First thing we got to deal with in the passage is Jesus sending two of his disciples to go into the village They're to find a colt or the, the young of a donkey. And that colt's going to be tied up and nobody will ever have sat on it. They are to untie the colt and bring it to Jesus. If the owner is to object, then they say the Lord has need of it. Now, how does Jesus know the colt is there? We don't get an answer. How did he know that it has never been sat on? We don't get an answer. The scriptures are silent. How did he know the owner would object? Maybe logic on that one. Most owners would object if you start untying their their baby donkey and taking it away, right? But I I think that you could argue Jesus knew that the colt was there because he's the sovereign Lord in the flesh, but I also think you can say that he trusts the scriptures and he trusts his father. Scripture said that this is what must take place, so Jesus knows the colt's going to be there. And in verses 32 through 34, everything unfolds just as Jesus said it would. And then in verse 35, they make a makeshift saddle with their garments, and Jesus becomes the first one to sit on this colt. So what is going on in this passage? And why is Jesus doing this? Why is he making such a strange request? Why the colt of a donkey? Well, 500 years earlier, 500 years before Jesus even lived, the prophet Zechariah said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a messianic prophecy. Zechariah is telling the people, Rejoice, your king is coming. The king you long for is coming a king like David, but better than David, a king that brings eternal salvation. David is the greatest monarch Israel had ever known. This king's going to be even better, a king who is righteous in a way that David was not. Now, Zechariah was a prophet whose ministry and his preaching anticipated the coming kingdom of God. He prophesied 20 years After the Jewish people were returning home, they had been carried off into exile by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Now they've been allowed to return home, and as they are coming home from Babylonian exile, they are rebuilding Jerusalem. But 20 years in, they've grown frustrated, they have grown complacent, the job is not finished. And the last half of Zechariah contains the prophet trying to encourage the people with eternal hope that would motivate them to get back to work and to rebuild. He's telling them, Jerusalem will not be in ruins forever. The nations will be in ruins for their rebellion against the Lord, but Jerusalem will not be in ruins forever. And a king is coming who will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. So all this business where Jesus is sending his disciples to get the colt and then he's riding on it was for the purpose of fulfilling the prophecy and showing the people that the Messiah that Zechariah talked about is here. And so that is our first point if you're taking notes this morning. Number one, fulfilled prophecy shows us the servant king. In fact, Matthew makes it really clear in his account. He says in Matthew 21, verse 4, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This is new behavior from Jesus. In the book of Luke, what we've seen is him trying to stop public announcements about his identity as the Messiah. So in Luke 5, The leper had to go at least tell the priest in order for the priest, after a number of days, uh, the the priest to be able to sign off and say, you can go back to your family, you can go back to your life. So that had to happen. But outside of that, Jesus says, don't tell anybody who I am. And this is something that happens uh, on a recurring basis in Matthew and in Mark and in John as well. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Well, the time for his death was fixed in the heavens from before the world, uh, before the world even began. So the, the very second that the, the point of that first nail would be driven through one of his hands, that very second was decreed by God and scheduled by his sovereign hand from the foundations of the earth. And throughout his life, Jesus is working on the Father's timetable. He's not working on the world's timetable he's not working on the timetable of the disciples he's not working on the timetable of his mother mary he is working on his timetable he wasn't going to try to get ahead of the agenda by having people running around screaming he is the messiah invoking the wrath of the religious establishment before it was time for that wrath to be invoked but the time is now the time for discretion is done attention is going to bring danger That danger is now being welcomed by Jesus because that danger will lead him to the cross where the servant king will be the sin bearer for his people. It's time to announce it clearly. Jesus is the Messiah. The time has come for the Messiah to fulfill the task that the Father had given to him, to win the kingdom by suffering, to win the kingdom by dying. And when he gets on that colt, he is fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, and he is without a doubt making a statement to all of Judea and all of the world about his identity. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is the Christ. And as he rides on the donkey, they spread out their clothes on the ground. This is a sign of submission. You know, I've got quite a few articles of clothing in my drawers and in my closet I would imagine most of you, you you had a choice this morning. You woke up and, and you had a bit of a menu. I won't assume that's the case for you. Um, maybe, maybe you don't, or maybe you're a minimalist, I don't know. But I would imagine most of you this morning had some choices to make when you woke up. First century uh, people that, that, that lived in, in Jesus' time, that lived in ancient Judea, they didn't really have that sort of choice when they woke up. Most people didn't have the money to have multiple uh, items of clothing, multiple tunics. What they had is what they had. And so for them to take off the clothes that shelter them, That are precious and important to them for some of them maybe the only garments they owned and to put them under the feet of Jesus was a symbolic act where they were saying we'll give the most important things we have to you in order to obey you we'll give everything to you and they're doing this with good intentions in their hearts but they still have inaccurate expectations Jesus's own disciples don't grasp the gravity of the moment John tells us this in John 12, verse 16. He says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. It's only later, after Jesus ascends into heaven, that the disciples go, Oh, Zechariah's prophecy. That's what was going on on Palm Sunday. And so he's getting closer, he comes down the slope of the Mount of Olives, the people begin to rejoice, they cry out, and they say, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord is an allusion to Psalm 118. If you go to Psalm 118, verse 26, the Bible says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is one of the Hillel Psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. They would chant these at the end of the Passover supper. The crowd modifies it. They add in king because they have every intention of making Christ their king after he defeats Caesar. That's their plan, right? Jesus has his plan, which is his father's plan, but they have their plan. Their plan is he's about to come in here. He's about to roll on Caesar. We're going to take Jerusalem back and then we are going to crown him. That's their plan. So they are collectively caught up in the ecstasy of believing that the day of the Lord is upon them. And Jesus is about to crush Rome and set up an era of unprecedented messianic peace in Jerusalem. Which is why they also cry out, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now if that reminds you of Christmas, it should. It's it's reminiscent of the words saying, In Luke 2, by the chorus of angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The hosts of heaven came and they sang a song of peace for the earth. But in Luke 19, the crowd sings a song of peace for heaven. Kent Hughes says, they sang more than they knew. For peace on earth is dependent upon peace in heaven. In fact, it comes down from above. It is only when man finds peace with God that there is peace on the earth. Matthew and John give us detail about something else the crowd is doing. Matthew 21, verse 8 Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! John 12 verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So Matthew and John record the crowd crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. They wanted to be saved, but again, their expectation does not match up with the reality. They're thinking, save us from Rome. But Jesus knows I'm saving you from something that's far worse than Rome. They're crying out for earthly deliverance from Roman rule and Roman tax. Jesus means to deliver them from sin and death. Matthew also records them calling Jesus the son of David, which means they're saying, you are David's heir. You are the promised ancestor who will reestablish his throne as the Lord declared. You are David's son who will set Israel free once and for all. And then Matthew and John record them taking out these palm branches and laying them on the ground and holding them as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And we need to know a little bit of their recent history to understand why they're doing this. A couple of hundred years before this, Israel was controlled by the Syrian empire, which was an offshoot of Alexander the Great's empire. A revolt was led by a priest named Mattathias, and his followers were called the Maccabees. And the Maccabees actually succeeded in driving the Syrians out. And as a result of the Maccabean revolt, Israel had this brief period of independence. And when that happened, the people celebrated the victory by waving palm branches in the air. After it took place, coins in Israel were minted with little palm branches on them to commemorate the victory. And so if if you come around Yorktown here... Um, which, which I'm always amazed when you go out of town and people say, so where are you from? I say, well, I live in Yorktown. And they're like, so where's that? What's, what's Yorktown? And I'm like, did you, did you miss sixth grade you know, American history? Do you remember this is where? Okay, anyway, so um, if you're around here on, on July 4th, and really then you have to be July 4th. It pretty much is like from July 1 to like July 10th. Okay, around 7 o'clock, you start hearing the fireworks go off. If you have dogs, you probably don't love it. Um, if you don't have dogs, maybe you do. I, I don't know. Um, it depends on the night for me. But most nights, I do enjoy the sound of freedom, right? We hear the fireworks going off. We're reminded of where we live, reminded of the freedom we have as Americans. Fireworks are, for us, a symbol of freedom. The bombs bursting in air, right? So it's a symbol of freedom for us palm branches were the fireworks of first century Jews. Okay, so that that should help it click for us. It was a sign of freedom. So as they take these palm branches out to celebrate Christ in this passage, make no mistake, they're celebrating the military victory that they believe he is about to deliver them. They're looking at this and they're saying it's another Maccabean revolt, except even better, because Mattathias was just a priest, but this man is our messiah. This brings us to our second point. Fulfilled prophecy shows us the servant king. And number two, a humble coronation shows us the servant king. We see at the end of verse 35 through verse 38. I think the elements of the coronation in this text really shows us something about the heart of Jesus in heaven. The heart of our Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father mediating for us this morning. It shows us something about the trajectory of his entire life. First of all, we would call this a humble coronation because of the animal that Jesus rides into the city. The colt doesn't just fulfill prophecy. The little foal of the donkey says something about who Jesus is and the mission that he is on. In the ancient world, if rulers were showing up for a battle, they rode on a war horse. You knew what they were there for by the type of beast of burden that they rode into the city. If they were on a horse, they were there to fight and to to pillage and to plunder but if they rode a donkey they came in peace to understand why Jesus is on a donkey here we got to go back to Zechariah 9 again here's the next verse after that Zechariah 9 9 prophecy about the the foal of the donkey very next verse I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah says that as the king enters in on the donkey, that chariots will be taken away. That's the main vehicle for war. That war horses will be taken away. That's the main beast of burden in war. The battle bow will be cut off. That's one of the two main weapons that was used in war. Peace will be proclaimed to the nations. It will not be a message of war. It will be a message of reconciliation. And the rule will be from sea to sea, extending to the ends of the earth, meaning there's no enemies in the whole globe that the Messiah will be concerned with. None of them will be a real threat to his power. And all this squares with what Jesus came to do. He has not come to make war on an earthly kingdom here. He has not come to take Jerusalem with swords and shields and military force. He has come to establish peace peace between God and peace between humanity. He has come to establish a kingdom that will have no fear of any enemy, natural or supernatural. And so he comes on a donkey and he makes his purpose clear that he's there to reconcile, he would win the kingdom. But not just an earthly kingdom that claims a plot of land. He would defeat the greatest of his enemies. For the time being, Caesar's not on that list. He came as the Prince of Peace who would gently save his people through a servant's death and redeem them from the grip of hell and sin and death and Satan. They wanted Jesus to ride in on a battle horse in grandeur. That's going to happen. The time is drawing near. Revelation 19 tells us about the time in which Jesus will come on a war horse, and Caesar and any other man-made kingdom who tries to oppose him will find themselves on the pointed end of his sword of judgment. Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Not a donkey, a horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the day of the Lord. When Jesus comes back, he will not ride on a foal. He will ride on a battle horse fit for the moment. The moment where every knee will finally bow. Every tongue will confess. On that day, the servant king will be the warrior king. The lamb will come like a lion. But here in Luke 19, that moment is not come yet. In Luke 19, he is entering in Jerusalem to finish the work of his first advent, his first coming. Blood has to be shed. Before eternal peace is established, And every enemy is defeated. The peace of salvation must be established in a different sort of battle. Jesus must go to the cross. Jesus must die for his enemies. And that's why in Zechariah 9, verse 11, it says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Freedom is going to come by blood, but it will be Jesus' blood and not Caesar's. And it will be eternal freedom, not temporary freedom. And this is a humble coronation because as Jesus is heading into Jerusalem, he knows what lies on the other side of Jerusalem's gates. The expectations of the people will not be met. And many of the same voices that are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, in just a matter of days. He knows it. But he goes forward because this is what the Messiah must do. This is the only hope of the world. This is the calling on his life from the foundation of the world. The crowd thought he was about to take everything from Rome, but in reality, he was about to give up everything for them. Let's look at the last few verses here. In 39-44, through the last way we see the servant king in this passage, weeping and warning, show us the servant king. Weeping and warning. The Pharisees are nothing if not consistent, right? You get kind of tired of them. We've been studying Luke now since the summer of 2020. We've been in Luke for a while, okay? How many times do these guys keep popping up? Every time you think you're done with them, they come out of the crevices like, 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 a, like a little poisonous snake, right? Chirping at Jesus once again, accusing Jesus once again, and here they are in the, in the midst of the humble coronation. Some of the Pharisees come up and, and, and they say, uh, you need to rebuke your disciples, They shouldn't be acting like this. Shouldn't be crowning you like you're the Messiah. You need to stop this. And Jesus essentially tells them, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. Now what's ironic is that the crowd is going to stop. They're going to go silent. They're not going to keep chanting Hosanna. The praise will not continue. In fact, the praise will turn to jeers and accusations and cries for capital punishment in just a matter of days. Jesus knows that. So if they go silent, and they will, the rocks will cry out. Now, a lot of times people teach this passage and say that the rocks will cry out with praise. I actually don't think that's what's going on here. The Greek word for cry is kratzo, and it means to croak or to scream. It's the word that was used when describing the cry of a raven. The cry of a raven doesn't sound like a cry of praise. The, The cry of the raven is a cry of warning. It's the sound of agony. And Jesus is saying, when these people cease to make sound, the stones will scream out in affirmation that judgment is coming upon Jerusalem. And further evidence of the fact that the crying of the stones is about judgment and not praise is that immediately after this, Jesus is crying. He's weeping over the city. And I think there's two sources for his lamenting here. One is that these people can't even recognize the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace is a Messiah going to die an atoning death, it's repentance and faith, which is the way that one will receive salvation from that atoning death, it's the resurrection that's going to follow. The events that secure salvation for the people of God is about to take place and they could not see it. Satan had blinded their eyes to the glory of Christ. They thought they saw the glory of Christ. so They cried out, Hosanna, but he knew that they didn't understand his mission. They didn't truly see his glory. They wouldn't worship him the way that he deserved as a king. They were going to crucify him as a criminal. And so he weeps. But secondly, he weeps because judgment is going to fall on Jerusalem for what they're about to do to the Son of God. And that is why his weeping is coupled with a warning in verses 43 and 44. You're going to get hemmed in by your enemies. You're going to be torn down, not just you, but your children. Every stone will be overturned, including the stones of the temple. And God will allow this judgment to come upon Jerusalem to show how they rejected the Messiah. And if you read history, Jesus' warning comes true in 70 A.D. The Romans laid waste to Jerusalem. Josephus described it this way, he says, Caesar had already commanded the entire city and temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the towers which projected higher than the others to stand. This was to be an encampment for the troops which would be left behind, and the towers were to reveal to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been and what sort of fortifications the Roman prowess had dominated. All the rest of the wall which encompassed the city, the demolition teams leveled, so that no one who would come there in the future would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. They left the tallest towers so that people would come and go, something great used to be here. But then when they saw the rubble, they would go, but nobody lives here now, because as great as it used to be, the Romans conquered it. Josephus goes on to say that what happened to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. was so awful that one of the Roman generals named Titus came in and he saw the scene and he lifted up his head to heaven and he cried out, God is my witness, this is not my doing. This is not the first time we've seen Jesus cry over Jerusalem. He did it in Luke 13. He wept over Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He talks about how long he's just wanted to gather them under his wings like a mother hen would gather her chicks. But in his lamenting and in his weeping, even in his warnings, what we're seeing is that Jesus is the servant king. He is gentle and he is tender and he hates sin and he hates what it's done to the world. He hates what it's done to his people He loathes how his own people have missed the time of their visitation because they're consumed with their passion for political independence. They're consumed with their own flesh. Jesus is a Savior that dies for sin, but Jesus is also a Savior who weeps for sin. He is the bishop of souls. Therefore, he hates when evil comes and drags souls into destruction john piper says we admire power more when it is merciful power and we admire mercy more when it is mighty mercy jesus is the image of merciful power and mighty mercy he's as powerful as it gets who else can determine when they die and who else has the ability to take up their life again who else can fulfill the prophecy of zechariah It's only him. He is uniquely powerful, and yet he is uniquely merciful, and his tears show it. And the donkey representing peace and not war shows it. And the death concluding mission that he is on shows it. So when we think of our servant king, we think of merciful power and powerful mercy. I was trying to think of what... Our application is here. We, we've seen who, Jesus is, who uh, Jesus is in this text. And so I wrestled, what is the application? Well, let's, let's just go back over the picture, okay? We've seen fulfilled prophecy that shows us Jesus is the servant king. And we've seen a humble coronation which shows us Jesus is the servant king. And we've seen his weeping and his warning which shows us Jesus is the servant, uh, servant king. And so with all that in mind, Isn't the application worship? Isn't the application you see Him, therefore exalt Him? You see Him, therefore adore Him? You see Him, therefore obey Him? Jerusalem was judged for not knowing the time of their visitation. The king came and they missed it, and more than that, they killed him. But if you are a believer this morning, you have not rejected him. You have received Him. At some point, He called out to you. He called you out of your darkness into marvelous light. You turned away from your sin. You agreed with God your sin was evil. You confessed Him as Savior and Lord. You received His gift of eternal life. You were forgiven. You were justified. You were given His Holy Spirit who now dwells in your heart. And He has saved you. So then, as we enter into Holy Week, with Good Friday ahead and Easter ahead, we must allow the images we've seen of the servant king entering into Jerusalem on a foal of peace to drive us to the altar of our hearts where we bow down and we worship the humble and majestic Christ. Let me tell you, this week is not ordinary. For centuries, even before the Protestant Reformation, the church has used a calendar of worship. And there are special seasons of worship on that calendar. So, for example, there's the season of Advent which is followed up by Epiphany, where we celebrate the fact that not only was Jesus born, but that he received the worship of Gentile kings, that Jesus was revealed to the Gentiles, that Jesus is a Savior, not just for the Jewish people, that he is a Savior for all the people of the earth. And then there is, after Epiphany, this ordinary time. And that's what the church called it for centuries, ordinary time. And then you get to Lent, and Lent begins... And, and you focus yourself on the sin that you have in your life and you confess that sin before God and um, you, you think about the sin that has, has required the sacrifice of a Savior in the first place. And then you get Palm Sunday and then you get Maundy Thursday where you uh, celebrate the, the, the Lord's Supper and you get Good Friday. We kind of combine those two into one service here at Seaford. And then you get Easter. And then after Easter, you get Pentecost. And then the church would call it ordinary time again. It would go back to ordinary time until the time of Advent came. So Holy Week is not ordinary. Holy Week is special. That's why it's called Holy Week. So we shouldn't be treating it like it's ordinary. I don't know what your plan is for this week. But you got about 12 hours to figure it out. I say that half joking and half not. This might be a good week for you to get off social media. When I say get off, I mean get off of it. This might be a a good week to, to not fill your mind with pictures of like cats cooking ravioli. You know what I mean? To not fill your mind with political arguments with people you haven't seen in 25 years, but for some reason you feel the need To have arguments with them over legislation and policy that's taking place in our government. Get off of it. Maybe this week you turn the TV off. Maybe you carve out some extra time in your Bible reading and on top of whatever Bible reading plan you have you just read the story of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. And if you say well I don't even have a Bible reading plan well, then great, this would be a, a wonderful week to start reading the Bible daily. Maybe you fast this week. That's not something we talk about a ton here at Seaford, but we should probably talk about more, and I intend to. Maybe you pick one meal a day this week and say, you know, I'm just not doing breakfast this week. And all week long, when I'm hungry in the morning, I'm going to spend that time praying to the Lord, talking to the Lord, recalling scriptures, focusing on Him. The bottom line is whatever it is that you're going to do, it's a week to be set apart, to do things differently, to stop and remember the servant king who won your peace by being your sin bearer, who won your peace by going to war, not with Caesar, but with the old serpent from the garden who convinced us we knew better than God in the first place. Don't waste it by treating it like it's ordinary. It's anything but ordinary. It should be a week filled with extraordinary worship. And we're going to start that right now by singing to our God, who is a uniquely holy God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts to sing again. Father God, I ask that you would, this morning, give us a a real, clear, picture of who your son is from the scriptures. We've seen it this morning in the text, but I pray that we wouldn't stop there. I pray we would be pursuing him through reading the Bible all week long. I pray this would be a week, Lord, in which we draw close to you, Jesus. I don't know where everybody's at this morning. I would assume we have people who are, are, feel like they're, they're limping spiritually, haven't really been reading their Bibles, haven't really been praying. They feel like they're just kind of in a, in a dry season. Lord what better week to hit the reset button to turn off the noise and to say I'll I'll blister my knees if that's what it takes but I'm going to draw close to the Lord this week. I'm walking into this church on Easter fired up about who Jesus is ready to worship the resurrected Christ. Lord there may be others who just don't even know you. They don't have a relationship with you. They're not Christians. This whole thing might be very new to them. God, I pray this would be a week where they discover who you are for the first time and they come to know you. And then finally, Lord, brothers and sisters that have, they might be saying, I'm not limping. I feel like I'm, I'm walking with the Lord. I feel like I'm close to him. We can always get closer, Lord. And I pray that if they're serious about working at their salvation with fear and trembling, then they would look at this Holy Week with an excitement and say, I'm going to worship this week. But they wouldn't assume they've arrived. They'd be willing to take, Lord, little steps that would nudge them toward worship throughout the week. Skipping a meal, fasting from social media, whatever it is you lead us to, Father. I just pray that this week we would say, I won't let it be ordinary. It's going to be special because he is special. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.